It's November 3rd, 2019. The Washington Nationals win their first World Series in franchise history, but don't expect the whole team to be at the White House dinner. Going to show some love for the late, great John Witherspoon. Going to go across the lines with Colin Kaepernick, Tommy Smith, John Carlos, and Peter Norman. And back again for the third week in a row, hater appreciation for their president and my social media punching bag, Dick Face Donald Trump. Across the country and around the world, across the street and around the corner, this is Over the Culture. This is Over the Culture podcast, where you get to hear my spin on things I like, like music, sports, sports entertainment, movies, TV shows, and your mom. Why doesn't she answer my calls anymore? Is it something I did? Is it me? You also get to hear about things I don't like, like dead skunks. How the hell does that smell get into your car and stays with you for 50 miles, smelling like doo-doo ass? And of course, Donald Trump. Fuck Donald Trump. What's up, everybody? I am your bastard of ceremonies, the one gig kid, Pat Stay Black, Alex Treblack, Reefer Sutherland, the most interesting blurred in podcasting, Sir Blunt Smokington, Steve G, and this is Over the Culture. Hey, my people, we're back for another week, a little later than usual, but hey, we're here we made it so made it through my first week at the plant my new gig or whatever up in Bellevue Ohio and it's pretty routine as I expected it's kind of what I need just need a return to normalcy you know routine that works for me I like structure helps me keep my peace It's just one less thing I have to worry about. A constant job. J-O-B. Word of John Witherspoon. And I seem to be paired with this same guy every day at my job. His name's Jesse. He's a friendly guy. I think he might be a little too friendly. A little too light on the loafers. He's really happy. Jesse's a really happy person. If you know what I mean. And he likes to talk a lot. And so far, that's the only thing I have against this job. Uh, I don't expect much. It's a factory place. You know, it's pretty straightforward. Speaks for itself. They tell you these things that you need to do, these tasks. You do them within an eight-hour period, and you take your ass home. But Jesse, I like Jesse, but he's fucking annoying because he likes to make any and everything a conversation and the things that he talk about that he talks about I never care about um I, I try to though I, I try to do signs that's I try to throw signs that I'm not interested in what you're talking about um it's gotten to the point where I just walk away and uh go from machine to machine do what I gotta do and sometimes this nigga is still talking to me like, dude, are you fucking retarded? Anyways, Jesse's cool. Uh, looks like me and him are going to be paired for our shift. Uh, so get used to it, Steve. And um, yeah, man, just do your job. Two things I want to talk about. One is this Kanye gospel album. 
and two power the mid-season finale of power now it just aired and we won't get the rest of the episodes i believe we have five or six more episodes left we won't get those until january and ghost is dead spoiler alert spoiler alert ghost is gone ghost is ghost and this is the modern who should who who killed jr that's basically what this is who shot ghost the episode ends with ghost getting shot he falls over the rail and there's several characters with the motive of killing ghost is it tommy is it tasha is it Tariq? is it sax is it andre who is it I know I'm ready to get this over with now because I was pulling for Ghost. I like Ghost. I sympathize with Ghost. I empathize with Ghost. Everybody wanted to kill Ghost. Ghost breathes wrong. Oh, we got to kill Ghost. Tommy killed Angela Valdez. Okay, but what was Ghost doing? We need to get some dirt on Ghost. Well, hey... They don't have to worry about that anymore. Ghost ain't going to jail. He's going in the hole. To the upper room. The upper room. Yep. So come on, five, six episodes. Hurry up with your funky ass. Come on, January. Um, I'm all ready to get this over with now. Ghost, that was my guy. Now he's, he's no more. So... I really don't know what to expect now, man. I do like Tommy. He's a little bit of a hothead. If if Ghost is going to die, at least keep Tommy around. I like Tommy. He's a little bit too much to, sometimes. Uh, I despise Tariq. Tasha's starting to become annoying. She's been annoying. And uh, Sax, he's still sticking around. Sax and Andre, they, they cheat death. They should have been gone. People have had their opportunity. But yet here they are. But ghost is ghost. James St. Patrick. Man. I, I totally didn't expect it. I thought they were a great duo. Tommy and Ghost. I felt like they were one of the best duos in TV history but man get money involved jealousy greed blind anger confusion he say she say things get in the way I just hope they don't end this like Sopranos and just black screen it But yeah, the next episode won't be until January, and we anticipate to see who shot Ghost. Now on to this Kunye debacle. I didn't even know people were still listening to Kanye West. I left him alone. Uh, I think you lost me at MAGA. Yeah. This is the same guy 
who was on national television and said George Bush doesn't care about black people. Now in 2019, I'm not positive if Kanye cares about black people. Seen the articles, seen the videos of him doing his Sunday service. I didn't know what this was about because I tried to avoid the guy, like the plague. I don't care about his music. I don't know. I, I don't know what it would take for me to come back around and, and like the guy again. But I'm done, done. Done, done, done. Done and dunner. Fuck Kanye. Kanye. Oh, Bows, he's like my dad. He's like my dad, man. Talking about Donald Trump. He's like my dad. Negro, you have a real dad who's still alive. You do know that, right? You're going to call this spaghetti face your dad? Like, man, the sunken place is very real. And I wouldn't be surprised if that Kardashian clan was on some voodoo, hoodoo shit. I don't know what they have wrapped in their vaginas, but it's making niggas lose their minds. It's making niggas get strung out in abandoned brothels. It's making them chop off their nether regions and putting on dresses. Bruce Jenner, Bruce Jinder. And then there's Kanye. Look, man, if this is what it takes, turning to God and, you know, producing and making gospel music, if this is what it takes to get you your peace, then so be it. More power to you. I hope this is what you need in your life at the moment, Mr. West. But as a fan, I ripped all your posters off the wall. This is the same guy who wrote Jesus Walks. Spaceship. Graduation. Late registration. Man. Five micers. Same guy. It's wearing these Make America Great hats. And he's preaching, he's trying to preach to the people. He is a son of God. Man, you know, if you want to get technical, uh, aren't we all supposed to be like sons and daughters of God? But I don't know if he's supposed to be like some kind of chosen Jim Baker, Jim Jones. I know I ain't drinking the Kool-Aid. Kunye gets no rotation in the black Nissan. He can make gospel. He can make trap gospel. He can make a goddamn polka album. I wouldn't be listening to it. I'm fed up with this dude. Obama even said it himself. This guy's a clown. Remember that shit? He said that when he was in office. And how can you argue Kunye is a clown. Like, what are you blubbering about, man? Like, maybe you and Trump bond so well because your Twitter, your Twitter page makes no fucking sense. Your tweets make no sense. 
Sometimes I think like one of his kids just like got a hold of his phone and just started pushing buttons. Like this cannot be a grown adult man saying these things that don't even make a bit of sense. Yeah, I'm not drinking Kool-Aid. I'm not putting money in the ties in the collection box. It's passing around. I don't care about your mass. I don't care about whatever it is you're selling, what you're preaching. Uh, but you do you. You do you, Kunye. You and your your second father, uh, Dick Dingleberry Trump, and your harem of soul-snatching sisters-in-law and mother-in-law and wife. Like, how are you... I know everyone has a past, but like, dude, you're like the chosen one and you're giving out the word and whatever, man. But like, dude, you married a chick who did porn. You married a whole, a whole, whole. You married a whole, whole out here, cuh. You married a whole, whole. But I digress. So congrats to the Washington Nationals for winning their first World Series championship in franchise history. They beat the Houston Astros in seven games. Every game in the series was won by the road team. The series MVP, Steven Strasburg, he won two games in the series. Something definitely noteworthy about the series, uh, when they had the game in Washington, I believe it was last Sunday, uh, Dingleberry Trump and his wife, uh, Melanoma, uh, they were in attendance and their faces showed up on the big screen and they were met with a crowd of boos, rightfully so. Uh, I feel a little bad for Malamar Trump. Because she didn't ask for this. She she's just, you know, trying to play her role as as the wife, the first wife or whatever, the first lady. And, you know, she's just attached to this scrotum of a human being. And I feel like it's really sucking her spirit and her soul. I feel for you, Milligram Trump. But anyways. The fact that she was there with Trump and Trump showed his spaghetti leftover. You, you, you know, when you use Tupperware, you, you heat up spaghetti in the Tupperware and you, heat, you eat it all and you, you wash the Tupperware and there's remnants of the spaghetti still there. That's what this fat fuck's face looked like. And I'm glad he got booed. And on top of that, they chanted, lock him up. Because he's a piece of shit that should be in prison making license plates. Now, the fact that the Nationals are the champs, of course, there is the uh, the traditional White House dinner where the, the winners, they, they get to have dinner with the president. And... 
Nationals pitcher Sean Doolittle declines the White House visit, saying he just can't do it. He declined his visit to the White House Monday for a ceremony honoring his team's historic World Series win, citing Donald Trump's rhetoric as the reason he won't attend the celebration. There's a lot of things and policies that I disagree with, but at the end of the day, it has more to do with the divisive rhetoric and the enabling of the conspiracy theories and widening the divide in this country, Doolittle said in an interview Friday with the Washington Post. At the end of the day, as much as I wanted to be there with my teammates and share that experience with my teammates, I can't do it, Doolittle told the Post. I just can't do it. The relief pitcher told the newspaper that he didn't want to be a distraction for his teammates who want the experience of meeting the president. People say you should go because it's about respecting the office of the president, Doolittle told the Post. And I think over the course of his time in office, Trump's done a lot of things that maybe don't respect the office. Doolittle told the Post that he feels very strongly about Trump's issues on race relations, mentioning the Central Park Five, the Fair Housing Act, and Trump's comments in the wake of a 2017 white nationalist rally in Charlottesville, Virginia. Doolittle, who spoke out at the time condemning the Charlottesville rally, told the Post that Trump's rhetoric has enabled and empowered racism and white supremacy. I don't want to hang out with somebody who talks like that, he said. Doolittle also told the newspaper that his wife has two mothers involved in the LGBTQ community, and he didn't want to turn my back on them. I have a brother-in-law who has autism, and Trump is a guy that mocked a disabled reporter. How would I explain that to him, that I hung out with somebody who mocked the way that he talked or the way that he moves his hands? I can't get past that stuff. Doolittle said to the Post, referring to Trump's 2015 attack against a New York Times reporter who has a physical disability. CNN has reached out to the Washington Nationals for comment. The Nationals beat the Houston Astros in Game 7 on Wednesday, earning the franchise's first World Series. Shout out to Doolittle. Sean Doolittle. He's got huevos. Standing on his own, too. Got something to stand for. Because fuck Donald Trump. It's not even about respecting the office. The whole time this clown has been in the office. It's been a mockery. It's been nothing like the previous presidents. And I don't care for a lot of the previous presidents. But at least it was done in the realm of being a president. I don't know. I just feel like this is a guy portraying somebody. Actually, no, I I take that back. He's not portraying shit. This guy is just the slob that found his way into the White House. And we're supposed to just automatically respect that? You gave Obama a hard time all eight years of his term, of his tenure. And I don't agree with everything Obama did, but he did a hell of a lot better than you are doing, Trump. You got booed in D.C. The White House is in D.C. That's that's where you're supposed to dwell. It's supposed to be like your second home, your home away from home, and you got booed there? They don't even like you in D.C. Where the fucking White House is. And then... Last night, you got booed at the UFC event in New York City. Aren't you from New York City? You fucking doofus. They don't even like you back home. 
They don't like you at your second home. They don't like you at your original home. You got booed. Why'd you even come, dude? You don't strike me as a UFC fan. You don't strike me as a fan of anything that requires physical activity or physical competition. I'm gonna just show my face. All the UFC and all the all the people who like fighting, they love me because it's they used to they used to fight in my plaza. Ugh, get over yourself. People don't like you. You need to just move to a faraway place, away from people. Where it's just mosquitoes and mules. Where you and Melina Trump can live your best lives. Far the fuck away from the rest of civilization. But hey, Sean Doolittle, you just got a new fan. You're all right by me. NBA season just started, and I think it's safe to say the bridge is over. Word to KRS-One. And what I mean by that is the Warrior Dynasty is no more. Clay with the K is out for the season. BDB KD. He's out for the season, and he's not even in Golden State. He's in Brooklyn. Steph, he's down. He's injured. Shouldn't be happy for someone's injury, Steve. Shouldn't be elated. Well, I don't know what to tell you because I am. (sighs) I'm guilty. I thought I said this early. Like my first episode, fuck Steph Curry. Am I a hater? I'm a self admitted hater. I am the president of the Golden State Steph Curry Hater Club. Hate, 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 motherfucking hate. Uh, Draymond is out for being ugly. I don't know what he was out for. Uh, I, I don't read too much into it. Give me the cliff notes. I just know they're out, and Draymond, when he did play, he showed that he couldn't carry a team. You know all that shit you were popping to KD? Yeah, we won a championship. We won 73 games without you. Man, wouldn't it be great to have that guy on your team if he was was healthy? Yeah, Draymond, we're about to see what you can do out there. No razzle-dazzle from Steph. No Clay with the K. No uh, Andre Ugly Dollar coming off the bench to heat it up for you. Yeah, keep yapping those pink lips. R.I.P. to the Warriors dynasty. You're going to hear that a lot from me throughout this NBA season. It's going to ring bells. R.I.P. Warrior Dynasty. So Warriors fans, where's the move now? What's it going to be? Going to be Clippers, Lakers fans? What what is it? We want to go over to the other side of the map. We're going to be 76ers fans. You like Antetokounmpo? Antetokounmpo, Antetokounmpo. 
Where are we going now? And trade in those Golden State jerseys for Ben Simmons jersey. Anthony Davis, LeBron, where, where are we going now? Going to follow KD to Brooklyn? Sports history. In 1899, world heavyweight boxing champ James J. Jeffries retains title, beating Tom Sharkey on points in 25 rounds at Coney Island Athletic Club in Brooklyn. In 1934, Yankees first baseman Lou Gehrig wins American League Triple Crown after hitting 363 with 49 home runs and 165 RBIs. 1942, Boston Red Sox outfielder Ted Williams wins American League Triple Crown with a 356 average, 36 home runs, and 137 RBIs. In 1962, Wilt Chamberlain of the San Francisco Warriors scores 72 points at the Los Angeles Lakers. It remains the sixth highest game total. In 1964, Philadelphia voters narrowly approved $25 million to build a new multi-purpose stadium that would become Veterans Stadium. In 1965, Los Angeles Dodgers pitcher Sandy Koufax is named Cy Young Award winner by a unanimous vote and for a third time, post 26-8 record, a 1.73 ERA, and record-shattering 382 strikeouts. In 1970, Hall of Fame pitcher Bob Gibson wins his second NL Cy Young Award with a 23-7 record, 273 strikeouts, and a 3.12 ERA. In 1980, after acquiring MLB's Oakland A's for $12.7 million, Walter Haas Jr. appoints himself the CEO. He would lead the team to four AL West Divisional titles in the 1989 World Series Championship. In 1981, Milwaukee Brewers Hall of Famer Raleigh Fingers wins the American League Cy Young Award with a 6-3 record, 28 saves, and a 1.04 ERA. In 1982, Detroit Pistons blocked 20 Cleveland Cavaliers shots in a 128-119 win in Richfield Coliseum, ties the NBA regulation game record. In 1987, Oakland A's first baseman Mark McGuire wins American League Rookie of the Year with 49 home runs and 118 RBIs. In 1989, Lou Pinella is named manager of the Cincinnati Reds, replacing Pete Rose, banned for life for gambling on MLB games. On that same day in 1989, NBA expansion Minnesota Timberwolves make their debut, losing 106-94 against the Supersonics at Seattle Center Coliseum. Also on that day in 1989, Sarunas Marshallonis and Alexander Volkov become the first Russians to play in a regular season NBA game. In 1990, Atlanta Hawks center Moses Malone sets an NBA record for free throws made in a career, passing Oscar Robinson. In 1993, Greg Maddox becomes the first pitcher since Sandy Koufax to win the National League Cy Young Award in successive MLB seasons, and the first in successive seasons with different teams the Cubs in 1992, and the Braves in 1993. In 1994, small forward Glenn Robinson signs the then most lucrative rookie contract in NBA history, a 10-year, $68.15 million deal with the Milwaukee Bucks. And let's just say the Bucks didn't get a fair return on their investment. In 1995, 
with a 105-91 victory over Charlotte at the United Center. Chicago wins their first of an NBA record 72 games in one season and their first of an NBA record 37 home games won at the start of a season. In 1996, San Francisco 49ers receiver Jerry Rice grabs three passes for 45 yards and a touchdown to become the first player in NFL history to reach 1,000 career receptions in a 24-17 win over the New Orleans Saints. He finishes his career with 1,549. In 1996, that same day, Los Angeles Lakers superstar Kobe Bryant becomes then youngest player to make his NBA debut at 18 years, 2 months, and 11 days in a 91-85 win over the Minnesota Timberwolves at the Great Western Forum. In 1997, Boston Red Sox shortstop Nomar Garciaparra becomes the sixth player to be a unanimous choice for American League Rookie of the Year. He leads the AL in hits, triples, and multi-hit games, also sets an AL rookie record for a 30-game hitting streak. And in 2013, Nick Foles connects with Riley Cooper three times to become the seventh passer in NFL history with seven touchdown tosses in a game during Philadelphia Eagles' 49-20 win over the Raiders at Oakland. Foles completes 22 of 28 for 406 yards. And that was my half-assed sports report. John Witherspoon's passing. He's been involved in comedy for as long as I can remember. His resume is massive. From Hollywood Shuffle to I'm Gonna Get You Sucker, House Party, Talking Dirty After Dark, The Five Heartbeats, Boomerang, The Meteor Man, Fatal Instinct, Friday, Vampire in Brooklyn, Sprung, Bullworth, I Got the Hookup, Ride, Next Friday, The Ladies Man, Little Nicky, Dr. Doolittle 2, Friday After Next, Soul Plane, Little Man. I got the hookup too. What's Happening, The Richard Pryor Show, The Incredible Hawk, Good Times, Barnaby Jones, WKRP in Cincinnati, Hill Street Blues, 227, What's Happening Now, Frank's Place, Amen, LA Law, Martin, when you played Uncle Junior in the Thanksgiving episode. The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. The Wayans Brothers, when you played Pops. Pop, pop, pop. Pudding pop. Slide. Slide. Now pop, pop, pop. Pudding pop. Now my love goes bang, bang, bang. Living Single. The Proud Family. The Tracy Morgan Show. Kim Possible. The Boondocks, when you played Robert. Granddad Freeman. Holding it down for years. We love you, John Witherspoon. Your quotes, classic. Don't nobody go in the bathroom for about 35, 45 minutes. You kids have been nothing but punks. Sissified. So quick to pick up a gun. Too scared to take an ass whooping. This is what makes you a man. When I was growing up, this was all the protection we needed. You win some, you lose some. But you live. You live to fight another day. Now you think you're a man with that gun in your hand, don't you? Put the gun down. Come on, put up your dukes. Now you're a man. Your uncle pick up a gun, too. He found out the hard way. 22 years old. You've got a choice. This is all you need. Every time I come in the kitchen, you in the kitchen. 
in the goddamn refrigerator, eating up all the food, all the chillers, all the pig's feet, all the collard greens. I want the hog balls. I want to eat them chillings. I like pig's feet. That's the beauty of it. I grab a dog and I choke him and I kick the shit out of him all day long. I foot up the dog's ass. Just bang, bang, bang. That's my pleasure. Got big ass today, son. I stink ass fit the dog. Well, I'll tell you one thing around here. You go to work, go to school. First of the month, rent is due. If you ain't got nothing on the table, you ain't got to worry about catching a dog. You got to worry about a dog catching your ass. Now, when I went to bed last night, didn't I tell you to take out the trash? So why didn't you do it? I wish you were sleeping right now. I'd knock your side of your head with a left hook. Make your ass wake up and take out that damn trash. Yeah, boy. <laughs> now, Marcus, I hear a girl down at the office got you pussy whip. You got to reverse it. Don't be pussy whip. Whip that pussy like this. Bang, bang, bang. Bang, bang. You got to coordinate. John Witherspoon. Rest in paradise. Our brother. We love you, man. When we come back, we're going to go across the lines with Colin Kaepernick, Tommy Smith, John Carlos, and Peter Norman. We'll be black after these messages. In today's birthdays, television personality and model Kendall Jenner turns 24 today. Former NBA player and UNC Tar Heel Ty Lawson is 32. Also 32 today is football player and political activist Colin Kaepernick. Former NBA player and also UNC Tar Heel Tyler Hansborough turns 34 today. He was teammates with Ty Lawson at North Carolina when they won the national championship in 2009. Rapper, producer, actor, one-third of the rap group Onyx, Sticky Fingers, turns 46 today. Former coach of that team up north, Brady Hoke is 61. Swedish actor, director, producer, screenwriter, and martial artist Dolph Lundgren turns 62. Happy 64th birthday to NFL quarterback and sportscaster Phil Simms. He won two Super Bowl rings with the New York Giants. Actress and comedian Kathy Kenny is 65 today. She's mostly known for her work on the Drew Carey show as Mimi Bobek, Drew Carey's longtime nemesis. Producer, talk show host, and comedian, if you can call him that, Dennis Miller turned 66. Never thought that guy was funny. Comedian, actress, and producer Roseanne Barr is 67 today. Former heavyweight champion Larry Holmes turns 70. On the next episode of Booty and Fight in Atlanta, this bitch pours a drink on that hoe when she finds out they're fucking the same nigga. Tune in to VH1's Booty and Fight in Atlanta, a show filled with cattiness, rattiness, fake tits, fake boobs, wigs, weaves, and most importantly, niggas. VH1's Booty and Fight in Atlanta. Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. A million thoughts for
like paint onto a blank canvas to symbolize but not alleviate the This Sunday at George R. Brown, come watch used and abandoned cars get destroyed by big fucking trucks. Rows of cars getting destroyed by big trucks. You don't want to miss this one. Bring out the whole family so the kids can enjoy. And just when you thought it was over, for the grand finale, there will be two big trucks. Ramming into each other. Featuring performances by Kid Rock, Ted Nugent, and that guy from Smash Mouth who looks like Guy Fury. special mention to those no longer with us. This past Tuesday, we lost American actor and comedian John Witherspoon. Born John Witherspoon on January 27, 1942 in Detroit, Michigan, John performed in various television shows and films such as Richard Pryor's show, Hollywood Shuffle, I'm Gonna Get You Sucka, House Party, Boomerang, The Friday Series, The Wayans Brothers, Boondocks, and Vampire in Brooklyn. Witherspoon died at his home in Sherman Oaks, California, October 29, 2019. He leaves behind his wife, Angela, and his two sons, John and Alexander. Witherspoon was 77. Mike Evans was an American actor and writer. Born Michael Jonas Evans on November 3, 1949 in Salisbury, North Carolina, Evans is best known as Lionel Jefferson on both All in the Family and the Jeffersons. He was also one of the creators and writers of the series Good Times. On December 14, 2006, Mike Evans died of throat cancer at his mother's home in 29 Palms, California. He is survived by his two daughters, Carlina and Tammy, his mother Annie Sue, and his brother Thomas. Evans was 57. Ken Berry was an American actor, dancer, and singer. Born Kenneth Ronald Berry on November 3, 1933 in Moline, Illinois, Berry starred in TV shows F Troop, The Andy Griffith Show, and Mama's Family. He died of heart complications in Burbank, California on December 1, 2018 at the age of 85. Charles Bronson was a Lithuanian-American soldier and actor. Born Charles Dennis Buczynski on November 3, 1921 in Erinfield, Pennsylvania, Bronson was often cast in the role of a police officer, gunfighter, or vigilante in revenge-oriented plot lines, had long-term collaborations with film directors Michael Winner and J. Lee Thompson, and appeared in 15 films with his second wife, Jill Ireland. During World War II, he flew 25 missions and received a Purple Heart for wounds received in battle. On August 30, 2003, Bronson died from respiratory failure at Cedar sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles. He was 81. Bob Feller was an American sailor, baseball player, and sportscaster. Born Robert William Andrew Feller on November 3, 1918 in Van Meter, Iowa, Feller played 18 seasons for the Cleveland Indians. Feller pitched from 1936 to 1941, and from 1945 to 1956, interrupted only by a four-year engagement in the Navy. In a career spanning 570 games, Feller pitched 3,827 innings and posted a win-loss record of 266 and 162. With 279 complete games, 44 shutouts, 
and a 3.25 ERA. He was an eight-time All-Star, Triple Crown winner. In 1948, he helped lead the Indians to a World Series victory, and he was inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame in 1962. On December 15, 2010, Feller died of complications from leukemia at 92. Hal Jackson was an American journalist and radio host. Born Harold Barron Jackson, November 3, 1915, in Charleston, South Carolina, Jackson was a radio personality who broke a number of color barriers in American radio broadcasting. In the 1940s, he became one of the first African-American radio sports announcers, broadcasting Howard University's home baseball games and the Homestead Grays Negro League baseball games. He later hosted The House That Jack Built, a program of jazz and blues on three Washington and Baltimore radio stations. By 1954, he became the first radio personality to broadcast three daily shows on three different New York stations. In 1971, Jackson and Percy Sutton, a former Manhattan Borough president, co-founded the Inner City Broadcasting Corporation, becoming the first African-American owned and operated station in New York. In 1990, Hal Jackson was the first minority inducted into the National Association of Broadcasters Hall of Fame. In 1995, he became the first African-American inducted into the National Radio Hall of Fame, and in 2001, the Broadcast and Cable Hall of Fame inducted Jackson. On May 23, 2012, Jackson died of natural causes with his wife and three children at his bedside. He often signed off the air with the motto, reminding listeners, it's nice to be important but it's important to be nice. Jackson was 96. Bronco Nagurski was a Canadian-American Hall of Fame football player, wrestler, and coach. Born Bronislaw Nagurski, November 3, 1908, in Rainy River, Ontario, Bronco was renowned for his strength and size. Nagurski was also a successful professional wrestler, recognized as a multiple-time world heavyweight champion. On January 7, 1990, he died in International Falls, and is buried at its St. Thomas Cemetery. Bronco was 81. Rest easy, y'all. Today is former NFL quarterback Colin Kaepernick's 32nd birthday. Born Colin Rand Kaepernick on November 3, 1987 in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Colin was selected with the 36th pick in the second round of the 2011 NFL Draft by the San Francisco 49ers. He played for the team from 2011 to 2016. During his tenure as the franchise's starting quarterback, he set the NFL record for most rushing yards by a quarterback in a single game with 181 yards, the NFL record for most rushing yards by a quarterback in a single postseason with 264 yards, and even led the team to the Super Bowl in 2013 against the Baltimore Ravens. The 49ers would lose that game 31-34, but Kaepernick threw for 302 yards, one passing touchdown, and ran for a touchdown. Even though his team didn't win the Super Bowl, things seemed to be on the up-and-up for the young quarterback who helped lead his team to the big game in only his second year. That is until 2016, in the 49ers' third preseason game. Kaepernick was noticed sitting down during the playing of the Star-Spangled Banner, as opposed to the tradition of standing. During a post-game interview, he explained his position, stating, I am not going to stand up to show pride in a flag for a country that oppresses black people and people of color. To me, this is bigger than football, and it would be selfish on my part to look the other way. There are bodies in the street and people getting paid leave and getting away with murder, referencing a series of African-American deaths 
caused by law enforcement that led to the Black Lives Matter movement and adding that he would continue to protest until he feels like American flag represents what it's supposed to, pre to represent. There are bodies in the street and people getting paid leave and getting away with murder, referencing a series of African-American deaths caused by law enforcement that led to the Black Lives Matter movement and adding that he would continue to protest until he feels like the American flag represents what it's supposed to represent. Around this time, the NFL endured an 8% decline in viewership from fans in that season, with the main reason stemming from player protests. Regarding his protests, fans expressed their concern about Kaepernick and desired that he remain unsigned by teams after his contract with the 49ers ended due to his actions. Kaepernick's NFL career came to an abrupt end, and it's been an uphill battle trying to earn a spot on a roster ever since. Now let's rewind back to the 1968 Olympics on October 16th in Mexico City, where a group of men used their platform as athletes to speak out on the racial injustices going on in the USA at the time. Those men were Tommy Smith, John Carlos, and Peter Norman. And that leads us to Across the Lines. He would step across the line. Habitually. He's a habitual line stepper. Line stepper. Leading up to the Olympics, an unarmed group of protesters assembled in Mexico City's Three Cultures Square to plan the next move of the growing Mexican students' movement. The Mexican government sent in bulldozers to disperse the thousands gathered, and troops fired into the crowd, massacring between three and 4,000 students. John Carlos and Tommy Smith were deeply affected by these events and the plight of marginalized people around the world. At the U.S. Olympic trials at Echo Summit, California, San Jose State teammate John Carlos beat Tommy Smith in his world record running the 200-meter sprint in 19.92. Carlos' record was disallowed because of the brush spike shoes he was wearing. John Wesley Carlos was born June 5, 1945 in Harlem, New York. Carlos became a founding member of the Olympic Project for Human Rights and originally advocated a boycott of the 1968 Mexico City Olympic Games unless four conditions were met withdrawal of South Africa and Rhodesia from the games, both of which practice apartheid, restoration of Muhammad Ali's world heavyweight boxing title, Avery Brundage to step down as president of the International Olympic Committee, and the hiring of more African-American assistant coaches. As the boycott failed to achieve support after the IOC withdrew invitations for South Africa and Rhodesia, he decided together with Smith to participate, but to stage a protest in case he received a medal. Tommy C. Smith was born June 6, 1944 in Clarksville, Texas. At the Olympics in 68, Smith nursed an injured hamstring into the 200-meter final. In the race, teammate John Carlos powered out to the lead through the turn, while Smith got to a slow start. Coming off the turn, Smith charged past Carlos and sped to victory. Knowing he had passed his training partner and closest foe, his victory was so clear he raised his arms to celebrate 10 meters before the finish line. Still, he improved upon his own world record that would last for 11 years. Smith's time of 19.83 was among the first automatically timed world records for the event as recorded by the International Association of Athletics Federations. Tommy Smith took the gold medal while running partner John Carlos took the bronze. In second place, the silver medal was rewarded to sprinter Peter Norman of Australia. Peter George Norman, born June 15, 1942, in Coburg, Victoria, Australia, was a five-time national 200 meters champion. 
He passed John Carlos just at the finish line at the Olympics with a time of 20.06 to Carlos 20.10. After the race, the three athletes went to the medal podium for their medals to be presented by David Cecil. On the podium, during the playing of the Star Spangled Banner, Smith and Carlos famously joined in a black power salute. While Smith and Carlos had their fists raised, Norman wore a badge on the podium in support of the Olympic Project for Human Rights. After the final, Carlos and Smith had told Norman what they were planning to do during the ceremony. As journalist Martin Flanagan wrote, they asked Norman if he believed in human rights. He said he did. They asked him if he believed in God. Norman, who came from a Salvation Army background, said he believed strongly in God. We knew that what we were going to do was far greater than any athletic feat. He said, I'll stand with you. Carlos said he expected to see fear in Norman's eyes. He didn't. I saw love, Carlos said. On the way to the medal ceremony, Norman saw the OPHR badge being worn by Paul Hoffman, a white member of the U.S. rowing team, and asked if he could wear it. It was Norman who suggested that Smith and Carlos share the black gloves used in their salute after Carlos left his pair at the Olympic Village. This is the reason for Smith raising his right fist while Carlos raised his left. The stadium hushed, then burst into racist sneers and angry insults. Smith and Carlos were rushed from the stadium and kicked out of the Olympic Village for turning their medal ceremony into a political statement. The event instantly became front page news. For politicizing the Olympics, U.S. Olympic officials under pressure from the IOC has suspended medalists Tommy Smith and John Carlos and sent them packing. Smith and Carlos came to the ceremony dressed to protest, wearing black socks and no shoes to symbolize African-American poverty, a black glove to express African-American strength and unity. Smith also wore a scarf while Carlos wore beads in memory of lynching victims. It was seen as an example of black power and mainstream America hated what they did. The United States was already deeply divided over the Vietnam War, the Civil Rights Movement, and the serial traumas of 1968, mounting anti-war protests, the assassinations of Martin Luther King Jr. and Robert F. Kennedy, the beating of protesters during the Democratic National Convention by Chicago police. Smith and Carlos returned home to a wave of anonymous death threats. The pressure, Carlos said, was a factor in his then-wife's suicide in 1977. One minute everything was sunny and happy, the next minute was chaos and crazy, he says. Smith recalled, I had no job, no education, and I was married with a seven-month-old son. Peter Norman, the white Australian runner, didn't raise his fist like Smith and Carlos, but he did show his solidarity as he stood with them, and it ended up destroying his career. At the time, Australia was experiencing racial tensions of its own. For years, it had been governed by its white Australia policy, which dramatically limited immigration to the country by non-white people. In 1966, the government made the first steps towards abolishing the policy, but its effects reverberated throughout Australia. Non-Australians weren't the only people discriminated against. Aboriginal Australians, too, were historically oppressed in the country, which forced Aboriginal children into boarding schools while removing others from their families and placing them with white households. Norman supported his fellow Olympian protest, in part because of intolerance he had witnessed in Australia. Even though he qualified for the next Olympic team by posting the fastest times by far in Australia, Peter Norman was snubbed in 1972. Rather than allow Norman to compete, the Australians did not send a sprinter at all. 
Norman immediately retired from sport and began to suffer from depression, alcoholism, and painkiller addiction. Norman died without being acknowledged for his contributions to the sport. Though he kept his silver medal, he was regularly excluded from events related to the sport. Even when the Olympics came to Sydney in 2000, he was not recognized. When Norman died in 2006, Carlos and Smith, who had kept in touch with Norman for years, were pallbearers at the Australian's funeral. It took until 2012 for the Australian government to apologize for the treatment Norman received in his home country. But even though it cost him his career and much of his happiness, Norman would have done it over again. I won a silver medal, he told the New York Times in 2000. But really, I ended up running the fastest race of my life to become part of something that transcended the games. Carlos and Smith are still in touch today and have been publicly supportive of other protesting athletes, including Colin Kaepernick. In the 49ers' fourth and final preseason game of 2016, Kaepernick opted to kneel rather than sit as he did in their previous games. He explained his decision to switch was an attempt to show more respect to former and current U.S. military members while still protesting during the anthem after having a conversation with former NFL player and U.S. military veteran Nate Boyer. After the September 2016 police shootings of Terrence Crutcher and Keith Lamont Scott, Kaepernick commented publicly on the shooting saying, this is a perfect example of what this is about. Photos then surfaced of him wearing socks depicting police officers as pigs. He acknowledged wearing them as a statement against rogue cops. He maintained that he has friends and family in law enforcement and that there are cops with good intentions who protect and serve and he was not targeting all police. Kaepernick went on to kneel during the anthem prior to every 49ers game that season. Also that year, he founded the Know Your Rights Camp, an organization which holds free seminars to disadvantaged youths to teach them about self-empowerment, American history, and legal rights. After his national anthem protest, Kaepernick pledged to donate $1 million to organizations working in oppressed communities. He donated $25,000 to the Mothers Against Police Brutality organization that was started by Colette Flanagan, whose son fell victim to police brutality. In 2018, Kaepernick announced that he would make the final $100,000 donation of his million-dollar pledge in the form of $10,000 donations to charities that would be matched by celebrities. Following his departure from the 49ers in 2016, Kaepernick went unsigned through the offseason and 2017 training caps, leading to allegations that he was being blackballed because of his on-field political statements as opposed to his performance. Baltimore Ravens owner Steve Biscotti considered signing Kaepernick during his free agency as a backup to the current Ravens starting quarterback, Joe Flacco. He did not go through with this as he believed the signing would result in heavy backlash and criticism from the general public. In November 2017, Kaepernick filed a grievance against the NFL, accusing NFL owners of collusion to keep him out of the league. The NFL requested to dismiss the case but was denied by an arbitrator, which meant the case would go to trial. On February 15, 2019, it was announced that Kaepernick reached a confidential settlement with the NFL and withdrew grievance. Colin Kaepernick, Tommy Smith, John Carlos, and Peter Norman used their platform as athletes to address concerns and matters that far outweigh the world of sports. Just like the 2018 Nike ad, which features Colin Kaepernick says, believe in something, even if it means sacrificing everything. And that was across the lines. Happy birthday, Cap.
mind stepper. Today in entertainment history, in 1956, The Wizard of Oz is televised for the first time on CBS. In 1975, Good Morning America premieres on ABC. In 1978, the show Different Strokes is broadcasted for the first time on NBC. In 1990, NBA on NBC debuts. 1992, I Will Always Love You, a Dolly Parton cover single is released by Whitney Houston. It would become the Billboard Song of the Year in 1993. And on that same day in 1992, the rock band Rage Against the Machine released their debut self-titled album, Rage Against the Machine, featuring songs like Killing in the Name, Bomb Track, Bullet in the Head, Know Your Enemy, Wake Up, Freedom. Just from top to bottom, beginning to end, the album is a masterpiece. 1993, The Nanny premieres on CBS. In 1995, Mr. Show debuts on HBO. 1998, 400 Degrees, the third studio album by Juvenile is released. It would go on to be number one hip-hop album on the billboards. In 2009, the 23rd Soul Train Music Award ceremony is held. Now this portion of the show is where we show appreciation to our haters. Hi, haters. the New York Times. In the Oval Office, an annoyed President Donald Trump ended an argument he was having with his aides. He reached into a drawer, took out his iPhone, and threw it on top of his historic resolute desk. Do you want me to settle this right now? There was no missing Trump's threat that day. In early 2017, the aides recalled. With a tweet, he could fling a directive to the world, and there was nothing they could do about it. Trump entered office. Twitter was a political tool that had helped him get elected in a digital howitizer that he relished firing. In the years since, he has fully integrated Twitter into the very fabric of his administration, reshaping the nature of the presidency and the presidential power. After Turkey invaded northern Syria this past month, he crafted his response not only in White House meetings, but also in a series of contradictory tweets. This summer, he announced increased tariffs on 300 billion worth of Chinese goods using a tweet to deepen tensions between the two countries. And in March, Trump cast aside more than 50 years of U.S. policy, tweeting his recognition of Israel's sovereignty in the Golan Heights. He openly delighted in the reaction he provoked. Boom, I press it, Trump recalled months later at a White House conference attended by conservative social media personalities. And within two seconds, we have breaking news. Early on, top aides wanted to restrain the president's Twitter habit even considering asking the company to impose a 15-minute delay on Trump's messages. But 11,390 presidential tweets later, many administration officials and lawmakers embrace his Twitter obsession, flocking to his social media chief with suggestions. Policy meetings are hijacked when Trump gets an idea for a tweet, drawing in cabinet members and others for wordsmithing. And as a president often at war with his own bureaucracy, he deploys Twitter to break through log jams overrule or humiliate recalcitrant advisors and preempt his staff. He needs to tweet like we need to eat, Kellyanne Conway, his White House counselor, said in an interview. In a presidency unlike any other, where Trump wakes to Twitter, goes to bed with it, and is comforted by how much it revolves around him, the person he most often singled out for praise was himself, more than 2,000 times, according to an analysis by the New York Times. Times examined Trump's use of Twitter since taking office reviewing all his tweets, retweets, and followers, and interviewing nearly 50 current and former administration officials, lawmakers and Twitter executives, and employees. 
What has emerged is a rich account with new analysis, previously unreported episodes, and fresh details of how the president exploits the platform to exert power. It is often by brute repetition. He has taken to Twitter to demand 1,159 times on immigration and his border wall, a top priority, and 521 times on tariffs, another key agenda item. Twitter is an instrument of his foreign policy. He has praised dictators more than 100 times while complaining nearly twice as much about the U.S. traditional allies. Twitter is the Trump administration's de facto personnel office. The chief executive has announced the departures of more than two dozen top officials, some fired by tweet. More than half of the president's posts, 5,889 have been attacks. No other category even comes close. His targets include the Russia investigation, a Federal Reserve that won't bow to his whims, previous administrations, entire cities that are led by Democrats, and adversaries from outspoken athletes to chief executives who displease him. Like no other modern president, Trump has publicly harangued businesses to advance his political goals and silence criticism, often with talk of government intervention. Using Twitter, he threatened Saturday Night Live with an investigation by the Federal Communications Commission and accused Amazon, led by Jeff Bezos, owner of the Washington Post, of cheating the U.S. Postal Service. As much as anything, Twitter is the broadcast network for Trump's parallel political reality, the alternative facts he has used to spread conspiracy theories, fake information, and extremist content, including material that energizes some of his base. Use of Twitter has accelerated sharply since the end of the special counsel's Russia investigation and reached a new high as Democrats open an impeachment inquiry, the analysis shows. He tweeted more than 500 times during the first two weeks of October, a pace that put him on track to triple his monthly average. The Times analyzed Trump's tweets through October 15th. The total by the end of the month reached 11,887. More than 66 million Twitter followers have become his private polling service, offering what he sees as validation for his performance in office. But fewer than one-fifth of his followers are voting-age Americans, according to a Times analysis of Pew Research, national surveys of adults who use Twitter. The White House press office declined to comment for this article and turned down an interview request with the president. Now, as Trump anticipates a bitter re-election battle and faces an impeachment inquiry by Democrats, the stakes are higher than ever before, and Twitter even more central to his presidency. His top campaign aides are embracing the outrage that Trump stirs with his tweets to reinforce his anti-establishment brand and strengthen his bond with the fiercely loyal supporters who propelled him into office. And as public backing for impeachment grows, the president is using the platform to build a defensive echo chamber. While people around Trump acknowledge that his tweets can cause political damage, the president is confident in his mastery of Twitter. This past week, as he announced that U.S. Special Forces had killed the leader of the Islamic State, Trump noted the terror group's digital prowess. They use the internet better than almost anybody in the world, he said. Perhaps other than Donald Trump. With a single tweet last fall, Trump sent his administration into a tailspin. I must, in the strongest of terms, asked Mexico to stop this onslaught. He wrote in October 2018, angry about a caravan of migrants from Central America. If unable to do so, I will call up the U.S. military and close our southern border. Trump's aides had tried for weeks to talk him out of shutting down the border. The logistics would be impossible and the economic pain extreme. The tweet prompted an emergency meeting down the hall from the Oval Office as aides scrambled to head off Trump's impulse, according to people familiar with the frantic scene. Like others in this article, they spoke on the condition of anonymity, 
for fear of angering the president. Aides succeeded in temporarily holding him off, but the tweet crystallized for cautious bureaucrats exactly what he wanted to stop people from coming into the country. In the months that followed, Trump's threat helped to set off an effort inside the government to find ever more restrictive ways to block immigrants. Nearly six months later, Kirsten Nelson, Homeland Security Secretary, was still trying to prevent a border shutdown when the president brought her resistance to an end. Kirsten Nelson, he tweeted, will be leaving her position. This is governing in the Trump era. For President Barack Obama, a tweet about presidential proposal might mark the conclusion of a long deliberative process. For Trump, Twitter is often the beginning of how policy is made. Suddenly there's a tweet and everything gets upended. And you spent the week trying to defend something else, said Rep. Peter King of New York. This person thrives on chaos. What we may find disconcerting or upsetting or whatever, it is actually what keeps him going. In October 2017, Rex Tillerson, the president's first secretary of state, was in China with a team of diplomats negotiating sanctions on Kim Jong-un, the North Korean leader, when Trump weighed in on Twitter. Tillerson was wasting his time trying to negotiate with Little Rocket Man, he wrote. Save your energy, Rex. We'll do what has to be done. Two months later, a Reuters headline blared that Mick Mulvaney, who then was Trump's new pick to lead the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, had decided to put on ICE sanctions against Wells Fargo for consumer abuses. It was little surprise. Mulvaney was an ally of the financial industry, but Trump had other ideas. Fines and penalties against Wells Fargo Bank for their bad acts against their customers and others will not be dropped as has incorrectly been reported, but we pursued, and if anything, substantially increased, he tweeted. Political appointees at the Bureau wanted to affirm Trump's desire publicly, despite long-standing policies against commenting on active investigations, according to former officials there. A spokesman for Mulvaney issued a statement saying that he shares the president's firm commitment to punishing bad actors and protecting American consumers. According to two people with direct knowledge of the Wells Fargo inquiry, career bureau officials took Trump's outburst as a green light to pursue aggressive negotiations with the bank, even as Mulvaney's team prepared to dial back penalties in other cases or shelve them. Wells Fargo ultimately agreed to a billion dollar federal settlement, the bureau's largest ever civil penalty. Over time, Trump has turned Twitter into a means of presidential communication, as vital as a statement from the White House, press secretary, or an Oval Office address. The press secretary has not held a daily on-camera press briefing, a decades-long ritual of presidential messaging since March. Instead, Trump's Twitter activity drives the day. And Trump has removed any doubt that his tweets carry the weight once reserved for more formal pronouncements. In summer 2018, his aides repeatedly tried to reassure Republican lawmakers that the president backed their hardline immigration bill, despite his remarks suggesting otherwise. But privately, Trump told several senators that there was only one certain sign of his support. If I don't tweet it, he said, according to two former senior advisors, don't listen to my staff. Article goes on. It's a pretty long piece, and I'm just going to leave it there. It's in the New York Times, and... Once again, we're getting reminded that the president of the United States is incompetent. He treats foreign relations like a food fight in the cafeteria. Look at his tweets, and it seems as if Eric Cartman made these tweets. Speak my authority. Just glad to have some power. 
Doesn't matter how he gets it. Doesn't matter how much he thinks he has. He's such a tough guy. He's an internet thug. He's a keyboard crip. He's a PC pyro. He's a pussy. He's a dingleberry. He's a turd in a three-piece suit. He loves him some him. Unfortunately, I don't think his wife does. That's another story. How about we just throw a wall around you and your family? Let's wrap this up, this impeachment process. Get him out of here, whatever you got to do. I'm sick of seeing his face on the TV. I'm sick of hearing his dumb voice. It's shocking that you still have supporters. You go to the UFC event, they boo you in New York. You go to the World Series, they boo you in DC. 49% of America is ready for this fucker to get impeached. I'm shocked that number is that small. Got a lot of lead paint eating Americans who don't know their own mouth from their asshole. But they can find their way to a voting bowl. They can find their way to a voting booth. And he probably can't even spell Donald Trump. Luckily for them, there's pictures now. The pitcher doesn't even... The winner of the World Series, he doesn't want to eat dinner with you. He doesn't want to eat cheeseburgers with you. Frozen Orida potato... Whatever the fuck you plan on getting these kids. Get these four for fours from Wendy's. They're great. They fill you up. Got a Frosty. They got chocolate Frosties now. They're going to be huge. People don't like you, Donald Trump. They don't like... I'm not talking about the idiots who voted you in. I'm talking about, like, civilized human beings who have both their thumbs who aren't so dead set on pleasing daddy all the time. Oh, daddy. You vote for Trump, I vote for Trump. You vote for Bush, I vote for Bush. Anything to please you, daddy. Yeah, son, shut up and suck my cock. Those are his followers. The daddy pleasers, the MAGA bros, the cousin fuckers. But the rest of us red-blooded Americans who have some fucking decency in our hearts, some sense in our heads, we're ready to impeach the peach. And every tweet that the peach tweets is a reminder that, hey, we're not tripping. This is really going on. He really is an idiot. Every tweet is a reminder Every appearance on television, every public speech is a reminder. This guy is a fucking rich moron. Continue doing you. I love seeing your world crumble right before our eyes. Thank you, dickface, dingleberry, duck-billed platypus, leftover spaghetti in the Tupperware face, Fuck Trump. Thank you. Fuck you.
That wraps up another edition of Over the Culture Podcast. Hope you enjoyed it. This week, my Buckeyes did not play. They had another bye, and that is not fine by me. Uh, my Cowboys play tomorrow. They play the Giants. Going to sweep them for the season. Yes, we will. The Browns. Uh, hmm, yeah, we're concerned about what kind of cleats we're going to wear. How about let's get some points on that board? Uh, we just going to scrap the season, Browns. Dog pound, just going to pack it up. I know one thing, Kitchens has got to go. Third down, fourth down. You got Nick Chubb on the sideline. He's kicking ass the whole game. Got third and inches, fourth and inches. You don't even have your running back, your star running back out on the field. What are you doing, man? Like, what are you doing? Yeah, anyways, y'all stay cool. Peace.